Chapter Fifth, Parts Ten to Eleven of God the Invisible King. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. God the Invisible King by H. G. Wells, Chapter Fifth, Parts Ten to Eleven. 10. THE UNIVERSALISM OF GOD Are any sorts of people shut off as if by inherent necessity from God? This is, so to speak, one of the standing questions of theology. It reappears with slight changes of form at every period of religious interest. It is, for example, the chief issue between the Armenian and the Calvinist. From its very opening proposition, modern religion sweeps past and far ahead of the old Arminian teachings of Wesleyans and Methodists, in its insistence upon the entirely finite nature of God. Armenians seem merely to have insisted that God has conditioned himself, and by his own free act left men free to accept or reject salvation. To the realist type of mind, here, as always, I use realist in its proper sense as the opposite of nominalist. To the old-fashioned, over-exact, and over-accentuating type of mind, such ways of thinking seem vague and unsatisfying. Just as it distresses the more downright kind of intelligence with a feeling of disloyalty to admit that God is not almighty, so it troubles the same sort of intelligence to hear that there is no clear line to be drawn between the saved and the lost realists like an exclusive flavor in their faith moreover it is a natural weakness of humanity to be forced into extreme positions by argument it is probable as i have already suggested that the absolute attributes of god were forced upon christianity under the stresses of propaganda and it is probable that the theory of a superhuman obstinacy beyond salvation arose out of the irritations natural to theological debate it is but a step from the realization that there are people absolutely unable or absolutely unwilling to see god as we see him to the conviction that they are therefore shut off from god by an invincible soul blindness it is very easy to believe that other people are essentially damned beyond the little world of our sympathies and comprehension there are those who seem inaccessible to god by any means within our experience they are people answering to the hard-hearted, to the stiff-necked generation of the Hebrew prophets. They betray and even confess to standards that seem hopelessly base to us. They show themselves incapable of any disinterested enthusiasm for beauty or truth or goodness. They are altogether remote from intelligent sacrifice. To every test they betray vileness of texture. They are mean, cold, wicked. There are people who seem to cheat with a private self-approval, who are ever ready to do harsh and cruel things, whose use for social feeling is the malignant boycott, and for prosperity, monopolization, and humiliating display, who seize upon religion and turn it into persecution, and upon beauty to torment it on the altars of some joyless vice we cannot do with such souls we have no use for them and it is very easy indeed to step from that persuasion to the belief that god has no use for them 
And besides these base people, there are the stupid people and the people with minds so poor in texture that they cannot even grasp the few broad and simple ideas that seem necessary to the salvation we experience, who lapse helplessly into fetishistic and fearful conceptions of God, and are apparently quite incapable of distinguishing between what is practically and what is spiritually good. It is an easy thing to conclude that the only way to God is our way to God, that he is the privilege of a finer and better sort, to which we of course belong, that he is no more the God of the card sharper, or the pickpocket, or the smart woman, or the loan monger, or the village oaf, than he is of the swine in the sty. But are we justified in thus limiting God to the measure of our moral and intellectual understanding? because some people seem to me steadfastly and consistently base or hopelessly and incurably dull and confused does it follow that there are not phases albeit i have never chanced to see them of exaltation in the one case and illumination in the other and may i not be a little restricting my perception of good while i have been ready enough to pronounce this or that person as being so far as i was concerned thoroughly damnable or utterly dull i find a curious reluctance to admit the general proposition which is necessary for these instances it is possible that the difference between arminian and calvinist is a difference of essential intellectual temperament rather than of theoretical conviction i am temperamentally Armenian, as I am temperamentally nominalist. I feel that it must be in the nature of God to attempt all souls. There must be accessibilities I can only suspect, and accessibilities of which I know nothing. Yet here is a consideration pointing rather the other way. If you think, as you must think, that you yourself can be lost to God and damned, then I cannot see how you can avoid thinking that other people can be damned but that is not to believe that there are people damned at the outset by their moral and intellectual insufficiency that is not to make out that there is a class of essential and incurable spiritual defectives the religious life preceded clear religious understanding and extends far beyond its range in my own case, I perceive that in spite of the value I attach to true belief, the reality of religion is not an intellectual thing. The essential religious fact is in another than the mental sphere. I am passionately anxious to have the idea of God clear in my own mind, and to make my beliefs plain and clear to other people, and particularly to other people who may seem to be feeling with me. I do perceive that error is evil if only because a faith based on confused conceptions and partial understandings may suffer irreparable injury through the collapse of its substratum of ideas. I doubt if faith can be complete and enduring if it is not secured by the definite knowledge of the true God. Yet I have also to admit that I find the form of my own religious emotion paralleled by people with whom I have no intellectual sympathy and no agreement in phrase or formula at all. There is, for example, this practical identity of religious feeling and this discrepancy of interpretation between such an inquirer as myself and a convert of the Salvation Army. 
Here, clothing itself in phrases and images of barbaric sacrifice, of slaughtered lambs and fountains of precious blood, a most repulsive and incomprehensible idiom to me, and expressing itself by shouts, clangor, trumpeting, gesticulations, and rhythmic pacings that stun and dismay my nerves. I find the same object sought, released from self, and the same end, the end of identification with the immortal, successfully, if perhaps rather insecurely, achieved. I see God indubitably present in these excitements, and I see personalities I could easily have misjudged as too base or too dense for spiritual understandings, lit by the manifest reflection of divinity. One may be led into the absurdest underestimates of religious possibilities if one estimates people only coldly and in the light of everyday life. There is a sub-intellectual religious life which, very conceivably, when its utmost range can be examined, excludes nothing human from religious cooperation, which will use any words to its tune, which takes its phrasing ready-made from the world about it as it takes the street for its temple, and yet which may be at its inner point in the directest contact with God. Religion may suffer from aphasia and still be religion. It may utter misleading or nonsensical words and yet intend and convey the truth. The methods of the Salvation Army are older than doctrinal Christianity and may long survive it. Men and women may still chant of Beulah Land and cry out in the ecstasy of salvation. The tambourine, that modern revival of the thrilling Alexandrine Sistrum, may still stir dull nerves to a first apprehension of powers and a call beyond the immediate material compulsion of life, when the creeds of Christianity are as dead as the lore of the Druids. The emancipation of mankind from obsolete theories and formularies may be accompanied by great tides of moral and emotional release among types and strata that by the standards of a trained and explicit intellectual, may seem spiritually hopeless. It is not necessary to imagine the whole world critical and lucid in order to imagine the whole world unified in religious sentiment, comprehending the same phrases and coming together, regardless of class and race and quality, in the worship and service of the true God. The coming kingship of God, if it is to be more than hieratic tyranny, must have this universality of appeal. As the head grows clear, the body will turn in the right direction. To the mass of men, modern religion says, This is the God it has always been in your nature to apprehend. 11. God and the Love and Status of Women now that we are discussing the general question of individual conduct, it will be convenient to take up again and restate in that relationship propositions already made very plainly in the second and third chapters. Here there are several excellent reasons for a certain amount of deliberate repetition. All the mystical relations of chastity, virginity, and the like with religion, those questions of physical status that play so large a part in most contemporary religions, have disappeared from modern faith. Let us be as clear as possible upon this. God is concerned by the health and fitness and vigor of his servants. We owe him our best and utmost. But he has no special concern and no special preferences or commandments regarding sexual things. Christ, it is manifest, was of the modern faith in these matters. He welcomed the Magdalene. Neither would he condemn the woman taken in adultery. 
Manifestly corruption and disease were not to stand between him and those who sought God in him. But the Christianity of the creeds, in this as in so many respects, does not rise to the level of its founder, and it is as necessary to repeat today, as though the name of Christ had not been ascendant for nineteen centuries, that sex is a secondary thing to religion, and sexual status of no account in the presence of God. It follows, quite logically, that God does not discriminate between man and woman in any essential things. We leave our individuality behind us when we come into the presence of God. Sex is not disavowed, but forgotten. Just as one's last meal is forgotten, which also is a difference between the religious moment of modern faith and certain Christian sacraments. You are a believer, and God is at hand to you. Heed not your state. Reach out to him, and he is there. In the moment of religion, you are human. It matters not what else you are, male or female, clean or unclean, Hebrew or Gentile, bond or free. It is after the moment of religion that we become concerned about our state and the manner in which we use ourselves. We have to follow our reason as our sole guide in our individual treatment of all such things as food and health and sex. God is the king of the whole world. He is the owner of our souls and bodies and all things. He is not particularly concerned about any aspect because he is concerned about every aspect. We have to make the best use of ourselves for his kingdom. That is our rule of life. That rule means neither painful nor frantic abstinences nor any forced way of living. Purity, cleanliness, health, none of these things are for themselves. They are for use. None are magic. All are means. The sword must be sharp and clean. That does not mean that we are perpetually to sharpen and clean it, which would weaken and waste the blade. The sword must neither be drawn constantly nor always rusting in its sheath. Those who have had the wits and soul to come to God will have the wits and soul to find out and know what is waste, what is vanity, what is the happiness that begets strength of body and spirit, what is error, where vice begins, and to avoid and repent and recoil from all those things that degrade. These are matters not of the rule of life, but of the application of life. They must neither be neglected nor made disproportionately important. To the believer, relationship with God is the supreme relationship. It is difficult to imagine how the association of lovers and friends can be very fine and close and good unless the two who love are each also linked to God, so that through their moods and fluctuations and the changes of years they can be held steadfast by his undying steadfastness. But it has been felt by many deep-feeling people that there is so much kindred between the love and trust of husband and wife, and the feeling we have for God, that it is reasonable to consider the former also as a sacred thing. They do so value that close love of mated man and woman. They are so intent upon its permanence and completeness, and to lift the dear relationship out of the ruck of casual and transitory things, that they want to bring it, as it were, into the very presence and assent of God. There are many who dream and desire that they are as deeply and completely mated as this, many more who would fain be so, and some who are and from this comes the earnest desire to make marriage sacramental and the attempt to impose upon all the world the outward appearance the restrictions the pretense at least of such a sacramental union 
There may be such a quasi-sacramental union in many cases, but only after years can one be sure of it. It is not to be brought about by vows and promises, but by an essential kindred and cleaving of body and spirit, and it concerns only the two who can dare to say they have it, and God. And the divine thing in marriage, the thing that is most like the love of God, is, even then, not the relationship of the man and woman as man and woman, but the comradeship, and trust, and mutual help, and pity that joins them. No doubt that from the mutual necessities of bodily love and the common adventure, the necessary honesties and helps of a joint life, there springs the stoutest, nearest, most enduring, and best of human companionship. Perhaps only upon that root can the best of mortal comradeship be got. But it does not follow that the mere ordinary coming together and pairing off of men and women is in itself divine or sacramental or anything of the sort. Being in love is a condition that may have its moments of sublime exaltation, but it is for the most part an experience far down the scale below divine experience. It is often love only in so far as it shares the name with better things. It is greed, it is admiration, it is desire, it is the itch for excitement, it is the instinct for competition, it is lust, it is curiosity, it is adventure, it is jealousy, it is hate. On a hundred scores, lovers meet and part. Thereby, some few find true love and a spirit of God in themselves or others. Lovers may love God in one another. I do not deny it. That is no reason why the imitation and outward form of this great happiness should be made an obligation upon all men and women who are attracted by one another, nor why it should be woven into the essentials of religion. For women, much more than for men, is this confusion dangerous, lest a personal love should shape and dominate their lives instead of God. He for God only, she for God in him, phrases the idea of Milton and of ancient Islam. It is the formula of sexual infatuation, a formula quite easily inverted, as the end of Goethe's Faust, the woman soul leadeth us upward and on, may witness. The whole drift of modern religious feeling is against this exaggeration of sexual feeling, these moods of sexual slavishness in spiritual things. Between the healthy love of ordinary mortal lovers in love and the love of God, there is an essential contrast and opposition in this, that preference, exclusiveness, and jealousy seem to be in the very nature of the former and are absolutely incompatible with the latter. The former is the intensest realization of which our individualities are capable. The latter is the way of escape from the limitations of individuality. It may be true that a few men and more women do achieve the completest unselfishness and self-abandonment in earthly love. So the poets and romancers tell us. If so, it is that by an imaginative perversion they have given to some attractive person a worship that should be reserved for God and a devotion that is normally evoked only by little children in their mother's heart. It is not the way between most of the men and women one meets in this world. But between God and the believer there is no other way. There is nothing else but self-surrender and the ending of self. End of chapter 5th Parts 10 to 11. Recording by William Tomko.